Um, good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Frank. Or good good evening. How are you doing? You're good evening where you are. Uh, where are you, by, by the way? I'm in London, uh, England, the UK, not London, Ontario. And yeah. so I, you might have noticed I picked up a bit of an accent in my two days here. So like, Madonna, yeah. I'm going to have that. I'm going to bring that back to Canada. So what time is it there now? Um, that's a great question. It is 6.06 p.m. Oh, in the evening. You're almost ready to go for dinner. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you for being our guest today on AdChats. Uh, as you know, we're not only looking forward to hearing where you're at and what you've done, but more importantly, I'm hopeful that the, the, the viewers will get a good kick out of our conversation. And uh, uh, anyways, we're going to begin with a few questions. Uh, a little bit of background about your career, where you've been, a uh, number of questions about that. And uh, at the interview, end of our interview, we're going to have about four or five questions that have come from the audience. So does that all work for you? It's awesome. Let's do awesome. it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Andrew, if you've watched any of these interviews over, over the time, we've been doing this on behalf of NABS. And of course, what we're trying to do is make it more aware for our industry, which is going through some pain, as you know, changes, many changes. A lot of the big agencies aren't doing as well as they were doing. I, I'm sure you guys are doing well. At least you have read about that a bit. But a lot of the smaller ones, like uh, no fixed, no you know, no fixed address, uh, broken heart love affair, Zach, and that seem to be doing really quite well. And normally in the award shows, there's the ones that sort of pick up all the all the prizes. But uh, we're really doing this obviously to get some input from yourself, but where the industry's been and where it's gone. But more importantly trying to help NABs and get more dollars for those that uh, aren't doing as quite as well as some of us others. So you're, you're, so thank you for uh, your time today. And um, do you have any special things that you're going to do while you're over there in London? Uh, well, I'm definitely going to go to some galleries. I'm going to go to the Saatchi gallery. I'm going to go to the Tate modern. Okay. And I actually, uh, so those are, those are more touristy things. And besides we do have an office here. So if anyone's listening, don't worry, I'm working. Uh, and then um, one of the reasons, the other reasons I'm here is because I executive produced a documentary, a feature length documentary that was accepted into um, a film festival called Rain Dance, which is a very big deal uh, in the documentary scene. And so I was very honored and thought, well, I, I can't miss it. So we'll be uh, screening that on Saturday and, you know, I'll be taking the stage to answer some questions. Well, that's great. Uh, that's a, another uh big thing that you've been doing in your career and not like just about not everybody gets that opportunity and one of the things that I would bring up is that the majority of creative people that I've interviewed during these uh, uh, ad chats over time don't really have the background that you have and have enjoyed they don't have an MBA from the Kellogg graduate school I mean that was uh, very interesting uh, we'll talk a little bit about that MBA a little bit later during the interview Mm -hmm. But you were born in New Jersey, so you're a Yankee. Um, I am indeed. You West have... Orange, West Orange, New Jersey. Yeah. Do you do you uh, have dual citizenship? I'm sure. Yes, I definitely do. Uh, two passports. It's all. I pay double taxes. I do it all. So, are you planning to get a British passport now? Or... I would love to get a British passport. I saw it. I. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to find uh, someone that would uh, vouch for me that said that I was their son so I could get a British passport because right. my my father's father was from London, but I don't think you can go that far back. 
Right. But I yeah. would like a passport from British because then you could travel all through the Commonwealth in a number of places. So what was it like growing up in New Jersey in uh, West Orange? Well, um, uh, you know, it was a very, I mean, it was a great upbringing. And I feel very thankful that I grew up where I grew up. And I had the parents that I had and the, and the family that I had and the supportive um, environment. People, you know, it's funny because even now people say like, wait, there's no way. You, you, you're American? And they're like, you seem so Canadian. And I said, what does that mean? They're like, well, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but you're nice. And I was like, well, that's the only way I could take it would be, it's kind of an insult, but, uh, but I understand what you're saying. And I, you know, New Jersey was really good to me. I mean, it, uh, from the standpoint of, I went to a really diverse high school. Um, I felt that I was always supported by my family and they always provided means to be like, there's nothing that you can't do or nothing that you can't accomplish. And they really instilled in me a um, kind of a, well, not only a thirst for education and learning uh, and curiosity, but really to know that, you know what, you'll always, will always have your back. And to have that safety net, I think is, you know, is really a gift because then it just helps you to explore new and different things. And uh, that's kind of what I did through my career. Well, I, I, from, I've, you have a very infectious uh, personality. I mean, it's very hard for someone not to like you. I mean, that's obviously a, a benefit. I mean, I, I enjoyed you while you were at the agency and it, you're, because sometimes I, you come across and take me by surprise when you say certain things. But uh, you said it says that you began your career in the U.S. at J. Walter Thompson in New York and then with Saatchi and Saatchi in Los Angeles. So how was that? And then what year did you come to Canada? Uh, so, yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, uh, I know it's now called Wonderman Thompson, um, yeah. but the, like JWT could not have been a better place, a better place to start because back then they had what was known as the professional development program. I don't know if they still do, but it was literally like going to school again. And they put, they invested a lot of time when people would actually put money to do that. And it was like an interagency um, you know, learning program. And we got access to all the, the, you know, the smartest people and they did your thing. You did a presentation. It was like, it was really a big deal. And I like, I just couldn't get enough of it. Um, so it was, those were really great times. And the, uh, the, the creative leader back then was a young man. I don't think he's really done much since, but his name was James Patterson. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he, and I still remember, um, when he wrote his first or co-wrote his first book was more of a research book. And it was like, it didn't really, you know, do anything, et cetera. And then I saw him at Barnes and Noble one day staring at his, his first book, like on the shelf. And I was like, you know, patted him. And I was like, hey, good luck with that. And, you know, like to see him now being the most famous author in the world, you know, it's just, it's kind of tickles me uh, because I remember, you know, where it all started. But, it, you know, I love being in New York. I love the exposure to just a lot of really smart people. Um, and I'm a, definitely a believer. And for anybody who's watching or listening, when people go like, well, how do I, how do I figure out my career? Like, where do I go first? And what do I do? And I was like, there, you shouldn't have, you know, there's always a plan, of course, you always think, but I'm like, you can't control 99% of what happens to you. So yeah. just kind of go, what, what are the reasons that I would go here? What, what benefits, how is it going to help me to grow in some way? And when you do that, 
it you always end up on top. And sometimes places won't be the your cup of tea or whatever, but it's like, what did I, what am I going to take away from this experience that then I can kind of continue to build through my career? Yeah, it's kind of like you say when it closes, one door closes and another opens. That just happened to me actually today when a particular uh, uh, thing that I was trying to promote and sell, the door closed and I go, well, I've been working on this for months. And then all of a sudden I got a brainwave and I ended up calling this other lady who uh, has her own business. She says, oh, I just love that. Yeah. And I'll absolutely help you out. And I wasn't expecting that uh, kind of a conversation. But what was Sachi and Sachi like? Um, well, let me I want to I want to just go because because okay. there was well, I know you're going to talk about business school, but that happened actually in the middle of this journey. So I just want to touch on that now because it was important. So when I was at JWT and I was, you know, doing some interesting things and, and things, I ran it, I had a went to a party and I was talking to somebody who went to business school. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. And I was like, business school, that's yeah, why not? I like education, feels like a good thing, whatever. And um, so I was like, well, where'd you go? And this she she's like Northwestern, they're really known for marketing. And I was like, I love marketing. Let's, you know, and um, and I kind of, this is my impulsive nature where I was just like, I'm going to go to business school. What do I have to do? Oh, I'll take the GMAT. Sure. I'll study for that. I'll do that thing. I'll apply. We'll see what happens. And, uh, there was no plan. There was no, well, if I go to business school, then I'll be able to do this, this, and this. It was just like, I think it's an interesting thing for me to do. And I think it will give me a broader perspective on marketing in general. And I was fortunate enough to uh, to go to Northwestern and um, sides quick side story, but when I applied to Northwestern or to, to Kellogg, I was waitlisted. And then they said, um, you've been waitlisted um, and we have more acceptances this year than ever before. Uh, but if you would like to us to consider your application for next year, um, you know, please send us an update on your position at work, et cetera. And so I, I went, okay, everybody who's going to, one, you know, everybody who goes to the school is smarter than me, more accomplished than me. I'm not going to win on those things. But I said, just like what we do in our business, I was like, how am I going to differentiate myself and be true to myself and be true to who I am? So I decided, I was like, well, I can go make up fancy titles and say, and then I met this person, I did this and whatever. Instead, I wrote a poem. And that was my entire submission. I wrote a poem, I submitted it, and uh, I was all set to go to another school because I was like, well, that's just going to be, you know, that's it, whatever. And then like two weeks before I was going to that other school, I received a letter in the mail saying, you have been accepted to next year's Northwestern Kellogg class, you know, just hang tight and we look forward to seeing you. Um, and uh, the reason I tell that story, one, is because, you know, you sometimes in life you have to take chances and just be like, I don't know what this is going to, if this is going to pay out or not. But again, you kind of go, I feel like this is the right thing to do. And I ran into the head of recruitment um, in my second year and he was in a class and he was telling a story. He goes, I, cause I think somebody asked, do you, do you remember you see thousands and thousands of applications? He's like, yeah, I remember the ones that stick out. And he goes, one guy, wrote a poem you know and I was like and he was like that was you and um it was just you know sometimes those things don't pay out but I was just like I was so proud of that moment because I was like win lose or draw I put myself out there and I did what I felt really good about 
So that's kind of like how I've done everything. And so when I eventually made it to Saatchi um, and I made a stop at a client in between before I even got to Saatchi, I just decided like, I'm going to keep on doing what I do. And so it was really um, living in LA. It was really in living in Santa Monica. It was really fun. Um, it was great, but you know, just, just always uh, taking some chances and like just putting things out there and never knowing where it goes. And then, you know, at Saatchi, I work with Industrial Light and Magic on approach. You know, I was hanging out at Skywalker Ranch. I'm doing these things. I'm making million dollar spots. Um, but it was also incredibly competitive, very like us against them type of thing, because it was just like everybody wanted. It was that, you know, what I call the true American way, the, the fighting it out in the pits and I didn't love that environment, but I was like, you know what? I'm still going to be, I'm going to be the guy that I am. I'm not going to change my personality because of it. And I think that I'll survive, you know, by still making, you know, building bridges um, and being more open with other people. And even if they shut down or they went, no, I can't show you what I'm working on. I'm like, no, that's, they're going to know me for the person who's very much more giving and willing to share with other people. So I think, it was great. Uh... You were that person when you were working with Todd and Denise. I mean, I got a little interview coming up with them a little bit later, but they actually echoed what you said just now. Do you happen to remember your poem? Um, I, I don't remember it. I have to find it because it was, but um, I think the, you know, the basic theme of it was a, an original is better than a sequel. And so the, the, the notion of here's the issue with business schools they, you know, mostly it's one type and it's like, you know, oh, hey, I was a consultant. I was an economist. I was a, you know, this and that and whatever. And I was like, that that's not going to lead to to interesting, broad thinking, much like an agency. The more diverse minds that you bring in from yeah. all walks of life, the better your product is going to be. Yeah. So um, that was kind of, that was the thematic and, and uh, yeah, I stick to it today. Till well, today. when you uh, came to Canada, it was, uh, it says that, uh, you became a partner with a chief creative director at G. Jeffrey and Partners. Was that your first job in Canada? No, my first job was working with you. Oh, oh you left us to go there then. Yes. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, you you also became chief creative director at Aldo Kandaris. And I yeah. know, as you know, I know both those individuals uh, over the years. But I want to ask you a question uh, because I couldn't believe that this happened, that G. Jeffrey changed their name and became Blamo. Yeah. And I said, oh, that's a joke. That has to be a joke, but it wasn't a joke. How yeah. did that come about? Because that was one of those, maybe yeah. those names that came about before uh, our time, like no fixed address. I mean, what does that mean? Correct. So here was the premise. When I did meet, and um, you know Heidi, Heidi Ehlers, yeah, we got a little she, conversation. Yeah. We got a conversation with her coming up too. We can ask her about this. So no, she was just like, you know, hey, would you be interested in joining GJP and like doing these things? And I said, um, well, I would if I was a partner, if I got to change the name, if I was a, you know, da -da 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 -da. and she's like, don't say like it might be possible. So my rationale for changing the name was just more like, I'm not afraid of reinvention. And I kind of went, well, and it wasn't a reflection of, of, you know, the agency or whatever, but like Peter Jeffrey was, he was he retired. 
So he was no longer a part of it. And I just said, you know, are you, are, uh, to me, it's like, we might as well start fresh and, and kind of start again. And I, I'm always very excited by starting over. Um, and Alan was in agreement. Jeffrey, I don't think was in agreement, but or Peter, but he didn't have really a say, even though he thought he had a say. And um, the and the, the rest of the partners went, okay. And so we came up with <laughs> lists of names. And I was like, I have one name on my list. And that name is Blamo. And everybody's like, Blamo. And I gave my rationale for why. And I just wanted to, you know, this is before No Fixed Address and BHLA and all Courage and all these, you know, really great agencies with um, really interesting names. It was just, it was caught everybody by surprise. But I said, but that's what I want us to do. I want us to catch everybody by surprise. And I want to be an active agency. I want, I want the reaction to be like, there's the work, Blamo. Like, like I want to, you know, which sounds crazy, wow. but like, yeah, wow. yeah. Superman, zing, bang. That's right. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted there to be, to take um, a place that, you know, felt, I mean, let's be honest, like had lost a little bit of its shine and, and bring in the energy of, of that. So we, you know, I think we were successful in a lot of ways and in some ways, um, you know, I learned a lot about partnership and, you know, the, the importance of, you know, loving the people that you are partners with and stuff. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy them. I just kind of went, uh, if I had to do it again, I would do it with people that I was like, yeah. you know, locked arms with. Yeah. Well, about 20 years ago in uh, 2001, that's when you actually enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the, uh, our, our, then DDB, uh, and uh, you became the agency's uh, executive creative director in a very short time. And during that time, while you were at the agency, we we definitely enjoyed becoming the five times candidate. Five times we won agency of the year, and we were Canada's most creative agency six times. Right. And obviously, you played a major role in that taking place, as well as a number of others. Yeah. But it was a time when. Uh, when I look back on it now, uh, DDB's quite changed since that time, you know, and I, I feel sad about what's going on. But nevertheless, um, now you are the global creative director at Alderman and, and you joined them in 2016. And you've been there, what, seven years now, maybe? Yeah, eight years? yeah. seven years. Yeah. Why uh, go to an agency that was well known for, for public relations versus? Uh... Yeah, so great. It's a great question. And the way that, um, and by the way, uh, you know, was, I so enjoyed DDB when we were there. And, yeah. you know, I still, I, I always believe it's like, it's never about one person. It's about surrounding yourself with great people, great talent, and, and giving them the, the freedom to be able to do what they do. And that's why I was like, there's, you know, when I think about all the incredible people that worked at our place, like I, you know, couldn't be prouder because I was like, there, you have to earn that reputation and then you have to stand up and you have to be like really supportive of what they do. So that was an incredible experience. Um, and I was at, you know, DDB for nine years. Um, yeah, and so yeah. before I, you know, went to other things, but when I, I was at Kandari and uh, again, you know, uh, I ignored a couple of phone calls and then they got very, you know, like we have to talk, just listen, to, you know, hear us out. And when um, John Clinton, who I was the first person who I really, you know, talked with about this and, and Lisa, 
Um, we just talked about like, you know, talked a little bit about the agency, what they're trying to accomplish, et cetera. And I said, look, I'm going to be really clear. Here's what I would want to get out of it. And I'll leave if that's not the reality. Like I'll, I'll leave and it will be, and you could, and also if you had different expectations, you shouldn't hire me because that's what I'm going, that's my promise. That's what I'm coming to join for. And it was very much aligned. Um, and I just want to like, you know what? I love, again, it's like, I love the, there's no, there's kind of like, I mean, yes, of course, there's always a safety net, but here's a whole new world. I don't understand. I don't understand PR other than like, you know, Martine teaching me some things here and there. Uh, but I was like, this is all they want to do is they want to, they want to expand their creative horizons. They want to be a different kind of place. And I'm like, I'll sign up for that all day long, as long as the support is there with the right people. So um, it was uh, it, the reason I'm there for seven years is because it's lived up to the promise. And, and we've been doing a really interesting thing. You're kind of a yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, but it's not to be a disruptor for the sake of being a disruptor. It's like going, we, you know, we have a certain belief of the kind of work that, and it's the kind of work that I really love to do, which hopefully makes an impact in the world and not a pretend impact, but a real impact. And so when I think about the proud, the things that I'm most proud of, it's those things where I can literally see the impact. Well, you were on the age of, uh, on the, uh, CBC's uh, Asia Persuasion at one point in time. And what did you talk about then? Uh, I can't remember, honestly. Can't remember. And you were also Global's TV National News and yep. and profiled by both the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star. So obviously you made some awareness and obviously it was interesting to them to cover it. Yeah, well, you know, I think in general, it's like you have to, of course, there's some, I mean, you do, you know, lots of, of uh, media and things. And, there's a lot, there's a lot of things to talk about. I just want to be like, you know, like, let's really talk, like, let's really get into it. And if there's a perspective on something that I think I can add value to, and like when I've, whether it's political or something else, like, you know, I love doing it, but it's also great just to do yeah. new experiences. I like that line you just said, I want to steal it. Let's really talk. And I, uh, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but you also sit on the board of advertising and design uh, club of Canada and a featured speaker at numerous uh, marketing uh, conferences. And I guess, obviously, you're good at it because you must like it. Eh? You must like the... Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Have you, have you missed any... Have I, have I missed anything that you'd like to do? I mean, is there anything that you'd... Well, well I'll, tell you, I'll tell you about something that I'm doing now. But, but I do want to point to, because I, I, I will tell you that in junior high school, which was, uh, for me, seventh grade, um, or no, sorry, it was ninth grade, I was uh, voted most quiet. <laughs> and, you know, people find that very difficult to believe, very hard to believe, but it's like, you know, people morph all the time and you change based on your circumstances. And what I love about public speaking and I love about those things is the chance to, I love about teaching, it's the chance to exchange ideas. And that to me is like, is very energizing. It's not, shouldn't be like always one way and also new challenges. I remember, when Brent Choi and I did our, we did a co-presentation, we weren't both working at the same place. And I said, hey, Brent, let's do this together. And of course, everybody's like, well, we want our agency to be promoted. Like, why would we bring those guys along and do the thing? And I was like, because it's fun. 
like, and it's going to be good. And like, why not try, try a, a um, mutual presentation? And it was great. Like the research of it was great. The, the whole process of putting it together was great. And so I continue to hopefully like, I'm always, I have never said, I don't think no to anything. Um, I once did stand-up comedy in front of a, of a room when I was at, um, at Kellogg. Uh, they, the, the person who was supposed to open up like the orientation week who was right. like canceled because they got some incredible like tour gig. And so I was talking to the person who organized it and she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was like, well, I'll do it. And then we hung up and I was like, what the heck did I just do? Right. And, but I was like, yeah, why not? Like, let me try it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? I'll bomb. And well, so I, I, yeah. I, I, I can see you doing that. Yeah, it's, it was just, it was fun. It was really fun. So to the answer question, I'm always looking. I do, obviously I've been around for a while. Um, I, my work with the ADCC, like it's always, the reason I've been around the ADCC for so long is because I just, I believe in the organization. I believe in the industry. I believe that we need to keep growing and changing and morphing and doing all those things. Um, so that's, that's hopefully what I keep following in my life. And that's why I got very involved with uh, an autism charity called Jake's House, which actually yeah. I was first introduced, okay. yeah. first introduced at DDB, where they, the first time I met David, who's the co-founder, came into DDB because he's like, oh, I would I, you know, love to talk to you about some things. And I'm now on the board of that charity. And, um, you know, I just did the documentary, which I was talking about, and I formed a band of autistic uh, individuals, people on the spectrum, um, and I'm the band manager. What do I know about being a band manager? Absolutely nothing. I guess you're finding out. Yeah, yeah, and it's just, it's, it's great. It's just, you know, you feel alive when you're doing different things. So in 19, from 1985 to 1989, you, were, you got your BA in social psychology, uh, yeah. it went to this Tufts, Tufts, is that how you pronounce it? Tufts, yes. Tufts, yeah. Uh, it's recognized for being the premier university of the United States for its rigorous and innovative research. So what was that like? Is that adding to your profile all along? Yeah, no, I just, you know, when I, I remember back in high school when I was like, I don't know what school to go to. And um, I think it was a similar thing where I saw this, this university in Massachusetts and it was mid-size. And I was like, okay, that's good. I don't want to go to any place that's too big, et cetera. Um, and it was, the only problem was it was very highly ranked. And I was like, well, they're not going to accept me. Um, and I, so I went, I went all in um, early decision. I put together, you know, some crazy no essay. Do another poem? <laughs> no poem, no poem this time. Um, and I got in and it was like, it was it was a great liberal arts college, very expensive. So if anybody's listening to this and they're like, oh, I'm going to send a child there, like, you know, make sure you look at the uh, the dollar signs because it was incredibly expensive. But it was a wonderful place that I felt big enough. It was like, you know, being the, uh, the big fish or bigger fish in a smaller pond. And again, exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of different people. And social psychology was not something I planned on studying. But again, like the study of learning about people and how we interact as social humans and, and, and animals, um, it's fascinating to me. So that's why I studied it. Did you uh, ever think about becoming uh, like a shrink or a Dr. Phil? Yeah, actually, my, my funny enough, my mom was convinced that I was going to become a shrink. And, <laughs> you're, you know, you're a great listener. 
And, you know, you have a lot of patience, which I probably have lost, you know, throughout uh, time. But when I, when I was time to graduate and I was like, uh, oh, wait, to be a shrink, I have to go to medical school. Um, I'll go to advertising. So, so it was just, you know, I, all I care about is like, you know, is the way people think, the way that they're behave, the way that they're motivated. And that's what I find fascinating. Well, I know that uh, uh, David Leonard, yep. who, uh, I met with uh, about a week and a half ago when he was in Vancouver. He said that you were a very rare breed of creative director. He said, if you closed your eyes, you wouldn't know if you were the agency person or the client. Yep. Which I, I found, even in this discussion already that we've had for the last 30 minutes or so, I'm finding out new things about you that sort of gives me an idea of who you were when you were there that I didn't know before now. Yeah. Well, you know, detail on it. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, and uh, David shared that with me too, like uh, at some point, and and I said, "That's." I feel so proud of that. And he's like, you know, there's not a lot of creative people who would be proud of that too. And I said, well, no, but I mean, this is the thing. It's the same thing. Like, you know, could I dress in black all the time? And could I do this? And I was like, yeah, I could, but it's not me. It's not who I am. Like I, I'm somebody who's interested in a lot of things. I, mean, I went to a business school for God's sakes. Like, yeah. like I, I sat through statistics classes and like interacted with people was in group projects and like, et cetera. And I just find, I, I don't think any of us is one are one dimensional. I think we're multidimensional and I love using, like, I love being an account person. Sometimes I love being a planner. Sometimes I love being a creative person. Sometimes I love being a, helping a client to think about a problem potentially in a different way. Sometimes like being essentially a consultant. So I think that just makes life more interesting than just, you know, filling one role and playing one part. It's like an actor. Would you want to, would you want to play the same part over and over again? No, it's like the actors who really get off are like, oh my God, you're hilarious, but I'm gonna, you're going to play like the meanest, scariest dude in the next, you know, movie. I'm like, that's, that's so cool because you just get to put on some, you know, different, you get to stretch yourself in different ways. Yeah, I, I, I would uh, enjoy, uh, I might not be able to remember the line that was given to me because I'm very bad at remembering things like that, but what I always like to, I like to play the heavy in a, in a mobster movie, you know. Yeah, you know, you, you know, you uh, like uh, the, like you're talking to me, you know, you yeah, know, you, you're talking to me, are you? You know, just being that. And and you you said that you uh, now I'm getting the feeling of why you left and 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 why you left DDB because you said you wouldn't leave anything unless you had a wonderful opportunity and and yeah. uh, you said you know I guess when you were talking was it uh, Lisa said that. Uh, uh, about having a creative foundation, but she wanted to accelerate ideas, and maybe that's why she brought you in to just change yeah. the way. In fact, you helped the agency uh, win some multiple awards at Cannes. Which, uh, yeah. which were which were those awards? Do you remember? So the yeah, the so the very first one they won. <laughs> was, uh, it was a project for HP, and it was a horrific brief. It was, I think it was about seven pages long and uh, it was for managed print services. Um, and I was, I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And everybody's like, are you, do you have to lie down? Like, are you okay? And I was like, no, because what this is really about 
is this is really about security. It's about cybersecurity. Yes, it's about printers, but it's like printers, people don't realize that you can be, yeah, a printer could be hacked and that people could you know, get your information through a printer at a company. And so I kind of became very quickly obsessed with this topic and working with an awesome team, we were able to connect with an individual uh, that, you know, Michael Calche, who's, who's, was one of the one of two biggest hackers in Canadian history, a black hat hacker. And when he was, you know, a young man, he, he infiltrated, create, you know, large companies and things like that. And his story became like my obsession. Um, and I said, okay, we have, and we already, so I'll tell you this, we already sold in a campaign uh, idea when we presented and they said, oh, okay, great. Yeah, we'll do that. And so I, I asked our account team, I said, could I have another meeting with the client because I want to change the idea. And they're like, what? It's already sold. And I said, I know, but it's not very good. And there's something better that I'm really excited about. And uh, it was this idea to do, this is where my start of my love for documentary, but um, it was the idea, I was like, Michael needs to be heard. Like Michael has so much to share because, and it's, it's like, don't you wanna know how a, a hacker thinks? Like, I wanna know how a hacker thinks and why is a printer like a great place to kind of go in and how would they do it and all these kind of things. So I called Hubert Davis and I said, Hubert, I'm really excited about this idea, this project and whatever. And just went on and he's like, wow, that's, you know, and, and with Untitled as well. And, it, and he's like, that it does sound really cool. I was like, okay, I'm gonna go try to sell it. So I met with the client and I just said like, here's why, and I want to bring the vision to you and this kind of thing. And, you know, God bless them. They were like, this sounds really great. So it grew from there. And so we ended up doing um, a very, we did. So I had to convince HP which is, you know, one of the world's biggest information providers to hire a hacker, um, which wasn't easy, but he passed the mustard. And so we did it. We did this um, short film, short documentary. It was, you know, a wonderful experience. We did some things around it and uh, it, you know, lo and behold, it, it won at camp. So that was the first well, one. We're going to show that in a little while, but uh, during your career, you've, uh, you've had an interview with, you brought it up earlier. Heidi Elders. Yep. And uh, the reason I brought it up this time is because in my previous interviews, I've told people that I wanted to be a professional wrestler, a cop, and uh, and a comedian, stand-up comedian. And uh, I didn't. I wrote this test with 400 individuals at the Vancouver Police Department. They selected 10, and I was one of the 10. And uh, and they, uh, I had a physical interview at that time, which I passed, but I didn't pass today the psychological test. And it was Heidi Ellers that actually told me that they knew that I wouldn't take orders. I yep. thought they didn't want me to have a gun, but uh, that probably that <laughs> too. Maybe both, yeah. Yeah, so let's have a little thing here. During the interview with Heidi, she asked you a few questions about trust and being a risk taker and being competitive. So I got a couple of clips here I wanna play. So Andrew, you have your MBA from Kellogg School of Business. How has that degree helped you in your career? Uh, very much so. Um, it's kind of like knowing your audience. So it's like, you know, beyond learning everything there is to know about marketing and the other side, it really is becoming a, a case where it's like, I can speak a language that 
others cannot speak. And there's a sense also of trust because, like, oh, okay, you get it. You right. understand what we're trying to do ultimately. Yeah. So when the, the tr there's nothing more important than trust in our business, whether we're trying to sell something, it could be the you know, strongest creative idea in the world or the, the smallest idea. It's still, it's all about trust. Are you a risk taker? I hope so. I try to be. I think sometimes you you might get caught up in the blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, the client's asking for this. Oh, we got to be careful of this and whatever. Our job is to be risk takers. Those people who don't take risks are the people who are either no longer in the industry or you've never heard of. So you have to. And you know what? Failure, dare I say it, is okay. Right. So it's not about, like, even, you know, whoever your god is in the industry, they've failed hundreds if not thousands of times. The question is, have you gotten back up? Have you brought something better the next time? Those are the people that really make a name for themselves. Chubba wubba. I get knocked down, I get back up again. That's right. Sing it for us. I get knocked down, <laughs> I get up again. Are you competitive? Um, I am, yes. I am way too competitive, probably, for my own good. But you have to be, because it's not only, I want, when I see an idea, I want it to be better. When I see a great idea for someone else, um, fuck, I wish I thought of that. The fuck is there because you're competitive. And that is a really healthy passion to have. And it doesn't mean I want everyone to fail except for me. What it means is I want to push our clients to like higher ground. I want to win more awards. And if, because what that reflects is we're doing amazing work and we're selling amazing work. And then that's where the competitive comes in. It's when you're lazy and you're just kind of fine with the status quo. That's something like I can't stomach. Good enough is good enough. I, uh, I really enjoyed that uh, interview. I watched the whole thing, but I took a couple of clips out of it because it's kind of just falling in line with the conversation we've had up to date. And uh, she was a pretty good recruiter at one point in time. She's not doing that anymore. But uh, obviously during that time while you're at DDB, you did a great job of uh, training of those that were below you. And I know we that we promoted Denise and Todd to become co-creative directors, which is a little bit unique. And they did, a, they did a great job up until they left to form uh, Broken Heart Love Affair, and they're actually doing very well. Mm -hmm. But from what I've heard and understand, uh, I have a short video here to play uh, from uh, Todd and Denise. I, I reached out to them to talk about what you did for them. And so let's play those uh, two spots, two videos here. Great. So how is it to work for Andrew Simon? Great, great question. Uh, we, I think I think it was terrible. It was one of our worst experiences, right? Because he was always in. He was always in early, like before everybody. Yeah, and then he, he would always, wake up early. Yeah, and then he'd have to stay. He would stay later. Then uh, even when he was doing nothing, he would just wait for the last person mm -hmm. to leave, and then he yeah. would leave. So it, there was this tremendous guilt uh, in working for him because sometimes you had to go into a funeral or something, and uh, or a birthday party. But and you uh, didn't want to go because he was because he was still there. He was still there. And then yeah, he would take notes. But no, on a, on a serious note, he was he was amazing to work for. He created one of the greatest creative departments that I've been a part of, one of my favorite creative departments. He created an environment where you uh, were competitive with your other teams, but it was also, uh, you shared your work with other teams. He created this environment where it was very, um, we, we just wanted to help each other make the work better. And I'm not sure, you know, uh, how he did that, but it was it was it was a great 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 place to work. Yeah, he had this uh, uh, magical mix, I'd say, of autonomy. Like he gave you the freedom and space to create, but also inspiration, which is such a it's like an amazing mix to have. 
in a leader. On a personal note, um, I I feel like I owe a lot to Andrew, and I think he was one of the very first flexible leaders who created an environment that was really great for women or for me as at that time, because um, when I I was at DDB and that's when um, I had twins when I was at DDB and I remember talking to Andrew and being really concerned like. I think my career is pretty much over and I was kind of accepting that maybe my career was over and I wanted to work four days a week and I wanted to be home for my kids, but I still really loved the culture and the work that DDB was doing, but I thought I might not be able to do it. And Andrew was, no, we're going to, you're going to have four days a week and you can do this and we'll be supportive of you. And, um, it meant so, so, so much to me. And it was really, I think, ahead of uh, ahead of its time. Andrew was ahead of his time and in being really um, um, just driven to help people get ahead regardless of their situations in life. And I've I've appreciated that my entire career. So she got the odd Friday off. I got the odd Friday off. Weekend, mostly were, yeah, you know? yeah, that was nice. Yeah, that was nice. <laughs> What's the next question? Yeah, second question. Uh, what was one of his best learnings for you both? What does that mean? His learnings. He what oh, did he learn from like, us? No, he learned everything no, what from have, us. What, what did we learn from him? Oh, what did we learn from him? Oh, it's uh, a good one. I think. Um, I think again back to like sharing work. He introduced peer review to me. Oh yeah, that was. I think good. that was one of the most interesting things because with most creatives growing up, you want to hide your ideas from each other, but encouraging sharing them. But it was was something interesting. But I actually think I actually think the, the number one thing I learned from him was just to be yourself. Mm -hmm. He was always calm and he was mm -hmm. always funny. Yeah. It didn't matter what the situation no, was. No, not all of his jokes were good. No, he wasn't bad. he wasn't good at Some of, yeah, comedy. Yeah, but yeah. he he tried. Yeah, he stayed calm yeah. and he attempted comedy yeah. often. And uh didn't matter if it was a stressful client situation. He always had, you know, a bad one-liner yeah, or very, something yeah. to keep it light. But he always remained calm. But yeah, I, be I, yourself. And I think being kind and inspiring, like you don't have to be a tyrant to get the best work out of people. I think that was an amazing lesson. Also, everything he did, you, I sensed he loved creativity so much. Like, yeah. So one of the things I still talk about it to this day is when he hired us, um, he wrote us a letter uh, to introduce us or kind of like an introductory, I guess most people are given their contracts and he gave us a letter and he wrote it so creatively and immediately you got the sense this was going to be a place that was going to be creative from top to bottom with just the small things that he did. Yeah. And I'm still trying to do things like that today from from working from him. It, it really inspired me. I'm a bit lazier, maybe. Yeah. I don't. I don't. No, no, not really. no. OK, no, you still got it. I, I don't She's come in as early. It. I don't come, still got it. I don't come in as early. No, we got to go soon. Right yeah. after this. <laughs> uh, very funny. eh? Great. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they still have a lot of uh, uh, love for you. And uh, obviously, what you helped create was the fact that they're doing so well in their own new agency now, really knocking it out of the park, you know. Uh, well, I'll tell you, Frank, I just want to interrupt for a sec, because when I when when I, I still remember hiring Denise and Todd, and it was very interesting because, as you know, I was co-creative director with Will Hammond, and we were interviewing a number of people, a number of people who are, you know, exceptionally gifted and tops of the agents of, of the industry, et cetera. And I was very curious to see after we went through all the interviews, I was like, okay, we're both going to write down who we want. 
And so we both wrote on a piece of paper and we both had the same answer, which was Todd and Denise. Oh. And there was a, as you can, as you know, something very magical about them. Not only are they, you know, they're delightful to be around. They're both exceptionally talented, um, but they just had the right, they have the right perspective on things. And so for the same reason that when I left CDB, I said to, to Dave Leonard, I said, uh, look, I, I know that, you know, this is probably not the best news, et cetera. I said, but the great news is you have my replacement already here. And that is Todd and Denise. And uh, I really meant that because I knew that how, how great they were and how they would just continue to grow and think, and there's nothing better than having that, you know, belief in going like, yeah, they're fantastic. They will continue to be fantastic. They're, they're going to kill it. They're going to be better than I am at the job. And uh, it's just, uh, it's a tribute to who they are as individuals and as a team. What, what, uh, what caused you to write an article titled, It's Time to Come Clean? Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. It was yeah. bright, shiny objects. It's, yes. Know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know what? It's, uh, I'll tell you, the, in our industry, I love awards just like the next person. I mean, everybody loves awards and shiny objects, et cetera. But I think I was, I got disillusioned because I questioned why, what my motivation was. And, you know, our motivation for awards, of course, is, is recognition and that can lead to greater salary. It can lead to promotion, um, being hired by other places. But I started to kind of uh, be concerned about the work. And it was like, I was just doing things to win awards. And this is before even like, you know, results became much more important, et cetera. But I was like, there's a way to game the system. And I just questioned my own integrity and said, you know what, it's, it's time to kind of get off the, the drug. And it doesn't mean like stop entering awards. It just means don't create work to win an award, create great work that would, should be recognized. So it's great. It will be recognized. It will have its time to be recognized as, you know, for awards, but I've created, you know, some of my favorite campaigns I've ever worked on didn't win, like the, you know, didn't, get a lion and whatever, it doesn't stop me from going, oh yeah, that was fantastic. You know, it's just, everything is, you know, just like can't, like there's a language there that you have to speak. There's a language that you have to express and you know that certain pieces of work or certain kinds of campaigns will get rewarded. Um, and it's dangerous to create anything to, for an end result. You should create something that you just believe in your heart to be fantastic. Well, you still love winning awards though, do you? Oh yeah, of course. I'm not an idiot. No, but you also use a campaign for the one show, and a coworker wanted to have uh, her name put to it, and you said no. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I sure did. Um, and the thing—it wasn't because I was being competitive; it was because the person didn't actually work on it. Yeah. So you know, I don't. I I I I can. I'm. I go out of my way now to make sure that everybody who has any kind of contribution, a real contribution to something, gets credited. Um, and uh, one of my pet peeves is like I really don't believe. I know that why they do it, but I don't believe that the you know whether it's chief creative officer, creative director, whatever the name should be at the top. I think it should be at the bottom. I think Hello. the name. Yeah. Sorry. Back in uh, 217, you talked about the fact that you hired a hacker and uh, branded content. And I yeah. actually have a, bit, a video here that I want to play. And uh, let's uh, you talk about how it came about afterwards. 
I was six years old when I got my first computer. I remember my dad plopping it down and the first moment I powered it up, just hearing it churning and making all the bleeping sounds, waiting for my commands. I knew this would play a major role down the line in my life. The possibilities really seemed endless. Several major websites are reeling this week after finding themselves targeted by a wave of cyber attacks. I was young, I was 15 years old, I was drunk on power. Truth is, is when I launched the first attack, I wasn't even at my computer. I had set up a timer. I had it run while I was in school. Everybody that I just wanted to shut down, at the flick of a button was gone. We're now in communication with state and federal officials. The stocks dropped, people sold. The overall assessment was $1.7 billion damage lost. A hacker's arsenal has greatly improved comparatively to when I was hacking. The exploit is the human being. Everybody thinks they're not a target. Like, why me? Like, what do I have? And the reality is, is that you don't need to be a target. The second you access the internet, you're granted an IP address. And that alone is worth something. There's just so many ways to manipulate a human being. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I want to play one more spot, then we'll talk about it. Uh, but it's pretty scary when I see that, particularly after this next spot. Oh yeah, no, there's a lot riding on this meeting. You might even say the future of both companies. I had some huge elaborate plan to worm my way into the video conference, but turns out I didn't have to. See this dude over my shoulder here? Guy looks like he's about to wet his pants. Well, he was so nervous, he forgot to pick up the key part of the presentation right off the printer. So now, it's just sitting here, waiting for anybody with an ax to grind to pick it up and share it with someone like me. Because this bad boy doesn't have user authentication. It's easy for print jobs like these to go unclaimed. Bingo. First, I got control of their printers. Then, I got control of their network. Then, I got control of their data. And now, this. All the juicy details of a major acquisition. And see whether I wanted to keep it quiet. Along with everything else I've stolen from this place, these guys are in for a really bad day. Truth is, I don't really have anything against them. And they seem like perfectly nice people. But, that's beside the point. Why am I exposing one of the financial world's most important secrets? Because I can. Who knows? Maybe next time I'll come after yours. Scary. Yeah. Living with that today more so than ever. Yes.
how was it uh, how did that all come about um so well the I mean, I told you the story behind that one, you know, the brief. And what's interesting is, uh, unbeknownst to us, the U.S. had hired Christian Slater and to do this character as, you know, a thing. And so what some people might go like, oh, that's great. Um, well, it actually made it very competitive because we had our campaign. They had their campaign. And I completely believed in our campaign because it was authentic and nothing against like Christian Slater is a great actor. The approach is very smart. It's well produced. But I was like to really get to the decision makers that we need to get to, we needed them to believe of the threat, not as an ad, but actually as like, here's what a hacker will do. Like it's documented. This guy will tell you his secrets. So, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's very, I stand, you know, totally behind the campaign. Uh, but I, I just want to say another interesting aspect. So watching the the uh, trailer for our documentary, like I was suddenly reminded of this, which is the thing also about our industry, which is so great, is we work with so many incredibly talented people and so many dedicated people. So the person who is the editor on what you just watched as the trailer, as also the short documentary was Dave DiCarlo of Rooster. And to show his dedication, there's a scene in that trailer where apparently Michael is like, you know, typing away on a keyboard. We didn't have that scene. Dave found that keyboard. He went to a store, like to like found it somewhere and he shot it. He direct, he, he actually shot that scene. And it's one of my favorite scenes of just, and that those are his fingers like tapping away. And I'm like, that's, what's great about what we do. The also, not only the freedom for that, for him to bring his talent to do his thing, but he was so dedicated to the project that he made it better by adding his little bit. And the same thing for Hubert, you know, directing. It's like, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good as it was if Hubert didn't bring his genius to it and, and was able to connect those kind of things. And same thing for the agency people. So I, I'm always amazed. Um, the best thing about our, our business is when we can bring out the best in people and demand better things. And that part, that goes back to the competitiveness too. But it's also just like going, you don't know they, you know, give people the opportunity to bring their genius to your project. Don't just kind of dictate every element because I will guarantee it will always be better if you're open to what they can bring. I'm going to switch uh, gears a little bit here just for a minute, but uh, I have a short video that will discuss the polarization of trust and loyalty, which you have brought up before. So let's play that little clip. So I could talk for like hours about my perspective on this, but I'm actually going to use data. Now I'm a creative guy, so this is really weird for me, okay? So just bear with me, because I'm actually going to talk about a study. Edelman, where I work, does this study called the Trust Barometer. We have done it for 18 years. 33,000 people online this year, um, 28 countries. And we learned some things about trust. And I want to share it with you because I like you. <laughs> Not all of you, but you know who I like and who I don't like. We're going to talk about a polarization of trust. Now, here's one thing we're not going to talk about tonight. We're not going to talk about fake news. So stop looking at the screen because we're not talking about this. But if we were, you would notice that people, surprise, surprise, are worried about fake news that throughout the world, things have happened 
where they realize that fake news is actually a really, really bad thing, okay? So 65% of people in Canada worry about false information or fake news being used as a weapon, as a weapon. The world we live in, ladies and gentlemen, is a world of distrust. I am a glass half full kind of guy, but this is a reality. So when you look at the world, and this is general population, Canada, as you notice, in 2017 was basically in the distrust space. In 2018, this is new data, we're still there. At least we're consistent, so feel good about that. But the reality is, is that we are, so it's not a horrible situation, but it's not a great situation. The thing that's amazing to me is when you look up at the US and how far it's fallen, and we know why, but the fact is that Canada has held its own, which is a really good story. Um, so that's, that's something that's interesting and I want you to think about as I go to this slide. So let's look at the trust in various sectors. The top one, technology. So over the last four years, five years, um, it's dropped 3%. That might not seem like much, but there is a trend. And I think this is the kind of thing that we all have to think about and worry about. And I'm sure we'll talk later about the power of brands and what brands mean and the responsibility, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna bring, go a little bit deeper into this right now. This, even though it is not coming out correctly um, because of some weird font thing, algorithm, algorithm. <laughs> they're, they're here. They, they follow everywhere. Canadian companies are the most trusted globally. Every country, Canadian country, Canadian companies came out number one. What does that tell you? The rest of the world needs to improve. Yes, the rest of the world definitely needs to improve, <laughs> big time. Um, but it also means that we have something special here. And I will tell you, I am American by birth, and sometimes I distrust myself. Um, I don't. So here's another thing that uh, when we look at business must show commitment to long term. So 51% companies that only think about themselves and their profits, that's what people believe. 68% CEOs are driven more by greed than a desire to make a positive difference in the world. This is scary shit. This is what people think in the world. This is what the general population thinks. It's not what I think. It's not what a couple of people in a focus group thinks. This is the world. So because we have on one side, Canadian businesses, awesome, we're the most trusted, that's what people think, and then the other side, we got the scary stuff of like people don't really trust in general, we have an imperative to lead. And that you could say, does that mean setting a good example like my parents always told me to do? Yes, but it's also good business because it will come back to bite you in the ass as we will talk about more later. Here's another really interesting thing, and I'm almost done. When we look at government, and we look up there, so what is most broken? Government, 46%. The percent who say that CEOs should take the lead on change rather than waiting for government to impose it, 68%. Businesses need to lead. In a vacuum, when you have governments distrusting, this is, again, this is glass half full. Businesses have an opportunity 
not even a responsibility, an opportunity to lead the charge and go, this is the way we want to do business. Because we're here at Marketing TO, ladies and gentlemen. I thought there was another slide, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> so that's all. I'm going to say that's it for now, but I cannot wait for the panel discussion and ask lots of questions. Thank you. Very interesting facts. In fact, I think even more so today since uh, that, uh, by the way, you're a good speaker, um, that since then it's even become more important to trust, trust, particularly in the area of whether or not they're giving back, whether the company really is truly in purpose. And so many companies, I look at it right now, you go, that's bullshit. Yep. You're still wanting to sell a sugar product and you're trying to say that you're giving back. And I go, no, you're not. You're just trying to find a way to sugarcoat the situation. So it's interesting that you said that Canadian businesses are trusted more. Is there a reason for that? Or is it just that we're nicer people as you started off? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, and, you know, things will change. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. It sounds like that's a constant. But I think uh, I just want to say three words. Action builds trust. So to your point, we can say blah, 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 blah. Why would you believe me? It's what your actions are that just like us as people, like when you do something, you show people that you, you know, you, you say, oh, I love you, honey. But if you don't show that love, if you don't express that through your actions, it's not believable. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the thing I think that we have to hold ourselves up. I mean, I think that I don't know what the latest data shows, but I think that Canadians partly maybe because we're well liked, et cetera. But, you know, we also know that, you know, certain companies have hit some rocky roads where they're not being trusted because of whether it's, you know, certain outages or certain um, some other things, some actions they might have taken uh, with some of their personnel, et cetera. So it's a constant reminder that we're always on on people are always watching. And so, you know, you should, I always say like companies need to step up and act like they are people. And like, how would you want, how do you think people are going to respond if you take certain actions or don't take certain actions? So in what I do now, we're obviously doing a lot of purpose driven kind of work. It's not because it's wins awards. It's because it builds, it's what people expect. And it's like those actions step in for others who maybe are not doing it, whether it's government or, or other people. And that's what that's what creates trust because you know people look at it and go, I wanna buy from a brand that does the right thing because those are my values. So I wanna I want make sure that that is reflected in the companies that I do business with. Well, speaking about brands and your brand, I want to talk about the ASD band that you got involved with. Obviously, you thought it has a purpose and you cared. So let's play a little trailer here. Give Ron any date in history and he'll tell you what day of the week it is. June 10, 1994. It's on uh, Friday, June 10th, 1994. January 1st, 2040. Sunday, the 1st it's, of January. Yeah, it's a Sunday. April the 3rd, 2063. Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. ASD Band is a, a group of musicians who are all on the autism spectrum. We're all autistic and we're all in a band, ASD Band. And that's the general gist.
Play. We've been playing together for a long time, but now this is real. Now we're gonna record an album. You memorized it? Oh, sure. Amazing. We're all going to be creating something out of nothing. I think it sounded really good. I really like this song. Congratulations. A one, two, three, go. Having autism is, is sort of like you're an actor in a play, and it's opening night, and everyone else has the script, and you don't. How did that come about? So um, the story is that three years ago, David Bodanis, who's a co-founder of Jake's House, he called me up and he said, my wife had this great idea. Um, she said, we should have a song for the charity because that would be great for a fundraiser. So he went online and he found the song, Give a Little Bit, very much on theme. That was by Supertramp, great 70s band, Peter uh, Roger Hodson, uh, who's the one who wrote that. And I said, so that's great. What do you need me for? And he said, well, I somehow convinced Roger Hodson to come to Toronto to do a private concert. I was like, wow, that's great. And he goes, yeah. And then with a 43-piece orchestra. Um, so I said, okay, good. What do you need me for again? And he said, I want you to film it because I know that's the kind of thing that you do. Uh, and I said to him, um, I can't do that for you. And he said, okay, why is that? And I said, because that's what I call a missed opportunity. Nobody is going to be, what are you going to do with it? Have you thought through like how you're going to market it, how you're going to use that song to actually get the fundraising? Is it about the night of, et cetera? And that's where you want to raise the money? And he said, yes. And so I asked a lot of questions, um, just like we do in our business. And I said, give me 24 hours and I'll come back to you. And what I, I came back to him, I think in 12, and I said, Okay, yeah, I've done some research. And one thing that's really interesting about many people who are on the spectrum is they're gifted in different areas. One of those being music. So my thought is, let's uh, bring a bunch of individuals together who are on the spectrum and have them perform with Roger on stage, give a little bit. So he said, well, that sounds really great, but how in the world would we do that? And I was like, we'll figure out a way. So um, that started this this journey because I, we uh, identified a few people, brought them together, uh, taught them the song, and we had this magical night. They performed on stage, they performed beautifully. We released a music video afterwards, it was great. And then David said to me, so, that's incredible, what's next? And I said, well, we're gonna form a band. So that's, the band is called ASD Band. Um, uh, we named it ASD for Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, I found Jackson, who you saw in that trailer, who is a guitar player. I found him online and invited him to be part of the band. And since then, it's been this crazy journey over the last three years where we've done, we started doing covers, um, cover tunes. That was a really fabulous experience. And then when they said, what are we going to do next? I said, well, we should put out our own original EP. They're a very talented group. So I introduced that notion, they were game. I said, at the same time, we're gonna shoot the documentary um, to, to tell more of their story because there's so many, they're so wonderful as wonderful individuals. And it is literally one thing where it's like success builds on success. They're fantastic. Um, if, I don't know when this is gonna air, but uh, if anybody's around on November 12th and, and feels and is in Toronto, uh, there is a charity event at Massey Hall called Dream Serenade, which is a wonderful event. 
and ASD band was invited to play uh, at at the this great thing with some of the greatest you know Canadian artists around. So we're very pleased about that. We have obviously a documentary that's in film festivals. Um, the band has been playing a few gigs here and there. We played the CNE this year which uh, was a really big deal. So, you know, again, it's like keep an open mind to what's possible and then great things happen. That's a great story. Uh, and I hope it goes with much success and hopefully you keep me up to date on basically what's taking place uh, for autism. Um, one little light note and we're gonna move on and there's only about three minutes left on our interview. So just to give you a timing on it, but uh, I have a little interview here again by Todd and Denise that uh, apparently you have a, a fixation on shoes. And uh, we're gonna play a little video here from uh, about your shoes. A lot of people don't know this, but Andrew had a terrible affliction. His feet stank like horribly, really bad. like horribly. And sometimes he would have to leave in the middle of a meeting because his feet were, and he'd buy <laughs> new shoes like halfway through the day. So he ended up acquiring a large mass of, of shoes. shoes that were very expensive, which I think was just to show how much money he made yeah, and, and in our face. But yeah. that's my understanding of it. Probably doesn't yeah. want most people to know that. But Can, is, is this recording? Is, is it recording? Yeah. That's is, the is, shoes. Yeah. Um, that's all I know about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't. I never heard about the story of shoes. I got to be honest. Frank can probably tell you. Maybe Frank, probably Frank knows. has a shoe story. Maybe there's a shoe story that I there don't you know. Go. Yeah. We love you, Andrew. You're the best. Are you the best too, Frank? You're both the best. Is there a shoe fetish? Well, let me, uh, let's take a look for one second. Let's see what I got on. Oh, those oh. are pretty shiny. Um, so, yeah, the, the uh, I call it, yeah, I do think it's a fetish. Um, let me tell you where the shoe thing started. I, it was when I bought my first pair of, and you know, it's, they're metallic, a lot of them metallic and they're shiny and whatever. And I, I bought it because it made me feel good. Like it made me feel, it put a smile on my face. And that is important to always keep a smile on your face. You know, what we do is tough in a lot of times and, you know, just to look down and go like, yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's bold. That's, you know, who would, who can pull that off? Like, I can't really pull it off, but it just makes me smile. It also is truthfully a conversation starter with clients. They'll be like, what's up? Oh, I love your shoes. What's up with the shoes? So, you know, it has a business purpose too. I tried to expense them, by the way, you didn't approve that. Um, and the, uh, so, and the, those are really the things like that's, that's why I do it as big. And it's not even like, oh, you can have a signature, like whatever. I'm just like, it just is a thing that I enjoy. And sometimes we just got to do things that we just, you know, that will make us happy. Um, I, I have a shoe fetish. I really do. And uh, yeah. I, I had, I think I got about a hundred pairs of shoes. Wow. And, that, and, and, that's and, a shoe. Sneakers, et cetera. I got, I'm not going to take you much longer and ask you one question by the audience and then we'll sign off. Um, how do you encourage clients to believe in an idea and to take risks? Ooh, the, million, the million dollar question. You really like kind of waited for that one. Um, I, so again, I'm going to say, first thing, it starts with trust. Uh, one thing that I think is really amazing to me is like when the only time a creative person sees a client is when they're trying to sell work. I think that's a big mistake. I think you need to build a relationship. 
just like anything else. You need to you know, be like, oh, okay, I can, I'm what you say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to feel better about it because you're saying it. So that's, that's a huge step ahead. Um, I also say like, be prepared, like really think through the argument. So it's not because I went to business school. It's because I just go like, why, if I was in their shoes, their shoes, um, why would I buy it? You know, what's the reason? Where did it come from? What was the inspiration for it? What's the rationale for it? Why is this something that's going to take off? And not just because I say I need something, you know, viral or whatever it might be. And so that to me, we don't put enough time into selling. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about the sell and hopefully putting, you know, my effort into the sell. But if I think we all can benefit if we really just don't go, work does not sell itself. I will tell you that. Um, the best presentations I've been a part of actually are the presentations where before you get to the creative, it's sold. And I'm not right. saying to put down the creative. It's just that your argument is so strong and so smart and they like you and you're doing your thing that you just go, this is an inevitability. And that's when the best work happens because there's less like, you know, pulling it apart and saying, what about this? I'm, I'm not sure about blue and like this kind of thing and that kind of thing. So I just say like build the relationship. Um, be really prepared, think through the argument. And, you know, even when you're doing internal presentations, when somebody goes, I don't know, because of this, 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 don't take it. You, it's easy to take that. as just like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. A client might say the same thing. So sometimes it's, and this is part of peer review as well. Yes, you want to hear from creatives and go, what could make it better and smarter and whatever. But you also want to hear from people who might think more similarly to the person you're trying to sell it to and say, what are the questions they're bringing up? What don't they understand? Listen to that and then put those things in there so that you have that great, like, this is so tight. It makes so much sense. And then last thing is personalize it. So my, my, not that everything is going to be personalized, but um, one of the other things I uh, was fortunate enough to be a part of the team that won a can lion was work that we did for uh, osteoporosis um, and for Amgen Canada. And, you know, my mom suffers from osteoporosis. It's a, it's a subject matter that I was really passionate about. I started that presentation with a picture of my mom. I didn't get right into like, here's the facts and here's the thing. I'm like, why am I here today? This woman, not only because she gave birth to me, but because she suffers from the very thing that we're trying to cure or we're trying to address. And so I have her in my mind when I present this idea to you, because that's why it's so important to me. Um, and, you know, I presented this to the CEO. The CEO is like, oh, my God, you had me like you. You connected to me. You understand the issue. And I said, right. And that's the thing. Like you had me at hello. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 Andrew, I thank you for a very interesting uh, and uh, a conversation today, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Yeah. Uh, I found out a lot about you today that I probably knew and I forgot that uh, you're a very heartwarming personality and a lovable guy and uh, very talented. So I hope that the viewers of NABS will take a lot in from this conversation today. So on behalf of NABS, I thank you. Uh, I thank you, Frank, for always being an inspiration to me, to the industry. Um, and, uh, and I thank NABS for being a great organization that does so much good, you know, for this is, this is the industry that we have chosen and, uh, and it's a great industry and we can continue to make it better by continuing to support great organizations like NABS um, and supporting each other. So my last little thing will be like when, and I am going to be hosting the ADCC awards this year. Um, 
when somebody wins and you have that competitive fire and going like, oh, I, you know, why that, I don't understand. And like, whatever, try to channel that into also going like, well, wait a second. Oh, that is pretty darn good. And like, and make that be a fire in you to do something better next time, you know, and don't look at it. It was my favorite saying is don't be bitter, be better. So that's, that's my last words. Thank you. All of us. Thank you. Thanks for the happy naps.